Miss the show? No worries. On point and on the podcast. The Prime Minister stating Canada will be net zero by 2050. Yeah, of course, I've heard these promises before. He says we'll cap our oil and gas sector basically going net zero by 2050. So he's put the oil and gas sector on notice that he has no use for what we have an abundance of, yet also does not bottom line how much money this is going to cost everyday Canadians to clean up after the world's worst offenders who didn't even bother to show up to this climate summit. We'll talk about Joe Biden. Remember, he was supposed to be the answer to all of Canada's prayers. Well, Biden is building back better, but his protectionist plan does not include Canada. His new plan actually means you have to buy American electric cars and batteries to get a rebate, meaning Canada could be blocked out of the auto market. And when did people really start to feel the effects of this pandemic? Not in the first wave, nor the second, we started to really feel it mentally and physically in wave number three, according to new research. We'll dive into that data. Let's get talking. Monday, November the 1st, as we kick into a brand new month, probably the least favorite month, I think, for a lot of people, because it's just all gray and gloomy as we uh, head into the holiday season. But nonetheless, here we are, and uh, certainly... By all accounts, Halloween uh, certainly a success, spectacular success this year in our neighborhood anyway. Uh, we got just tons of kids. I bought a fortune of candy, enough to feed an army, and then I uh, completely ran out. So that is what you um, say is a successful night. And certainly um, a lot of amazing costumes, both kids and adults. A lot of chocolate. Have you ever noticed that You can wake up with like 40 little Halloween wrappers like scattered all over the place and not think twice about it. But then like you see a wrapper of a full chocolate bar and you think, oh, why did you do that? I don't know what the psychology is to that. It didn't seem to bother me though. But yes, um, I saw all these kids out, the adults dressing up. What I did not see, of course, was anyone who decided that, oh, I don't know, blackface is a good costume this year, right? No one decided to get out their black shoe polish because, like, who does that? Apparently a Toronto school teacher does that. And here we are in 2021. This teacher, part of the wokest school board ever, somehow thought, hey, I got a good idea. I'm just going to wear blackface this Halloween. And um, the ninth grade teacher, apparently, according to students, claimed he had no costumes. So I guess he got out some shoe polish and thought, well, I'll just put this on my face and then... He taught several classes. Other teachers saw him in his costume. Apparently, they didn't think to speak up. I can't imagine the principal did not know. They all crossed paths. Nothing said. I mean, apparently, this only became a concern when students started taking pictures and, you know, sending it home to their parents. And the parents started freaking out. And so you got to wonder, how stupid and ignorant do you have to think? Like, like how would you... It's stupid to think it's okay. At what point as a grown adult, with all the conversations we have around anti-black racism, could a grown arst teacher think it would get a pass? I mean, right before Halloween, the schools send letters home for weeks telling parents, this is what's appropriate, this is not what's appropriate, make sure you don't do anything inappropriate. So then, you know, you're getting your costume on, you look in the mirror, and you're uh, putting your black shoe polish on your face, and you're wondering, hmm... Is this a good idea? I mean, what could go wrong? Uh, 
Apparently not with his teacher or any of those who turned a blind eye. And so now parents are demanding uh, they want answers. You hold people accountable when you are doing supervision and you track and you mm. monitor. And at the first sight of something not right, you hold that person accountable so that it never gets to this point. Hmm. I guess she's right. People should be held accountable. That would include the principal or other teachers who looked away. And uh, by all accounts, this teacher is going to face a punishment. He's been placed on leave. Which is, by the way, more of a punishment than the prime minister got after doing blackface as many as three times that he can remember. Hell, Justin Trudeau got reelected despite the fact that his blackface chapters literally had him covered. I mean, this teacher just covered like his face, nothing else, right? Justin Trudeau was so immersed in black shoe polish that he made sure to do his arms, his legs, his neck, everything. There was nothing left of him that was white. He was very dedicated to it. He also added an afro for extra effects. So it really strikes me as odd that parents seem more outraged with this offense than that of a world leader. And I'd be very curious to know how many of these outraged parents or teachers cast a ballot for the prime minister, making the excuse, well, he was only 29. I mean, how many times have we heard that? He was only 29. It was a long time ago. He was, he was only 20. I assure you, at 29, I never did blackface. I can assure you, at 19, I didn't do blackface. I can assure you, at 9 or any other year of my life, I didn't do blackface. The prime minister was 29. Apparently, he didn't know better. Now, I'm not excusing the teacher's behavior. He's clearly a moron thinking this was at all acceptable, but maybe he kind of thought he'd get the same pass as Justin Trudeau. Or maybe he was dressed up as Trudeau. I don't know. Would he get away with that? I mean, those arguing that there's no excuse for this in 2021, well, there should have been no excuse when, the, when Justin Trudeau did this and was found out in 2019. So if the prime minister didn't get fired, I think the unions might have a case for this teacher. The outrage is rather selective. Maybe instead teacher or parents would be better served finding out, like, what else did my kid learn in this class? Because I don't know if this teacher has the best judgment. So if you've got a kid in this guy's class, maybe go after, uh, go, go through the curriculum of what they've learned under his guidance because he doesn't have the best judgment. We'll talk about this. We've got a very busy show today because uh, we're also going to talk about um, what everyone's talking about. And uh, that is the fear-mongering well underway in Glasgow as the United Nations declares we are digging our graves. Apparently, we need to save humanity before climate threatens human extinction. And I laugh because I, I, I can only laugh. They just utter this nonsense. And then they welcome in the world elite, all rushing in on their gas-guzzling private jets. 400 and counting so far. 400 private jets full of unicorn dust, I guess, right? And there's Justin Trudeau having a grand old time partying it up with the other elites. Not a mask to be seen on the photos uh, showing Trudeau drinking at some pub crammed in with other climate elites because it's only unsafe for us to travel and unmask, right? Not there. Everything's good to go. But I listened to his speech this morning in front of world leaders and he made it pretty clear. He has no use for Alberta. He will kneecap Alberta's oil at a time when the world needs more Alberta oil. 
and uh, he'll get Canada to net zero by 2050. But of course, there's no details on what this is actually going to cost Canadians who have to pay the bills that are going up by the second every single day. There's never those details. Because for us to meet any of those goals, we have to pay hundreds, if not thousands of dollars more per carbon. Or per, um, per ton of carbon. I mean, it's just ridiculous how much they want us to pay. So Trudeau only ever bothers to kick Canada, Alberta specifically, and he, you know, he claims he wants to be a climate leader, but not, not one, not him or any other leader there ever send a message to the dirtiest dictators. I mean, it's easy to kick Canada because we're stupid enough to let them do it, especially Trudeau. But where's the leadership? Who's taken on Venezuela? Who's taken on Saudi Arabia? Who's going after China? No one. They don't even bother to show up these countries. They don't care. They're selling oil. They're making dirt in the air. They don't care because no one calls them on it. They get away with it. But yeah, let's go after Canada because Canada is a real problem. We'll cap oil and gas sector emissions today and ensure they decrease tomorrow at a pace and scale needed to reach net zero by 2050. That's no small task for a major oil and gas producing country. It's a big step that's absolutely necessary. Ooh, big promises and a whole lot of hot air coming out of uh, COP26. But uh, what did our prime minister actually say? And I don't think he said anything new. I mean, he's made promises like this since 2015, but I guess we're believed now. Now he is formally going to do it. Now he's ready to do it, right? He's going to cap emissions. And uh, he used a lot of the same fear-mongering that other world leaders were using at this summit. You know, the world is a grim and dangerous place. And then Trudeau invoked the memory of the summer fires in B.C. as proof that... Um, Climate change is killing us, but then you ask any environmentalist, and there are lots there. I don't know how they got there, but they must have swam and uh, walked there. But they'll tell you, you know, emissions aren't the problem. They just don't want any fossil fuel used at all, period. So we are just to move on to green energy while the world real offender, offenders, uh, India, China, Venezuela, Saudi, all these others just continue causing climate carnage. carnage. Let me bring in Lori Goldstein. He is a columnist with the Toronto Sun, and I always think of Lori because not only do I really like you, Lori, but you also follow this um, so closely that you can pick up on all the nuances. Because I think for most people, Lori, it just gets like, okay, great, Canada's going to do something, and then it's, an, it's a soundbite. But what, what is actually being done or not done? Well, um, nothing. Uh, the only news uh, out of Trudeau's announcement today, he made exactly the same promise, almost word for word, during the election. The news, if you want to call it that, is that we learned on Monday or today that Environment Minister Stephen Guibert and Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson are going to send a letter to the Net Zero Advisory Board asking for advice on how to do, um, you know, <laughs> reining in the oil and gas sector. That was the news. Um, there was nothing else. The second thing he talked about was Canada wants to be part of the global effort to uh, eliminate coal. Uh, that's very easy for Canada to do because long before uh, Justin Trudeau became prime minister and because of our, our you know, our makeup of natural resources, we have a lot of hydro. Uh, Canada only gets 7.9 percent of its electricity from coal. Now, that's as opposed to countries like China, 
where it's 60 percent, uh, India, where it's 70 percent, and the U.S., where it's 20 percent. And since those are the three largest, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emitters in the world, and China in 2019 emitted more greenhouse gases than the entire developed world combined and burns more coal than all of the world combined, what's really significant at this um, well, not just at this press conference, but really sig- significant is what does China intend to do? What does India mm. tend to do? What does Russia intend to do? Um, and what does the United States uh, tend to do? And only the United States has shown, uh, you know, under President Biden anyway, any sort of um, even even um, rhetorical commitment to lowering you know emissions to the level that they say the UN says will have to be lowered for us to avoid catastrophic warming. And there's a problem with that, too. And, and you, you correctly noted on it. The world is not going to end if global temperatures rise above 1.5 C Celsius or 2 C, uh, you know, by 2100 compared to pre-industrial times. Uh, no, nobody, not even the UN, says this is an existential threat to humanity. Um, what they say is that the weather will become wilder. Um, you know, we, we will have, you know, strange, you know, climate all over the um, world. There will be more what they call climate refugees. Um, and there will be more, you know, death and destruction caused by um, by unpredictable uh, and unusual weather. But even that has to be questioned because in, in reality... Well, we've in, seen that for decades. You know, well, but also in reality, all over the world, those things are dropping because we are better and better at adapting to um, climate change. And so one of the things to look for, aside from, well, what's China going to do? And the president of China isn't even there. And what's Putin mm-hmm. going to do? And the president uh, and, and Putin isn't even there. Is, um, you know, what it, it, it's like, think of how easy it is for these people to promise to do something in 2050. They're all probably going to be dead. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. right. so it's it's the easiest thing for the leader of a democratic or uh, um, an autocratic country to make these promises. But what I think is always a good indicator is never mind what they say. Look at what they're doing. And the irony is that right now, while they're all there telling us all they're going to do to save us, Greenhouse gas emissions are skyrocketing, and the reason they're skyrocketing right now in 2021 is because nations all over the world are starting to try and power themselves out of the recession they landed in in 2020 because of the pandemic. So, right. so here's the situation. 2019, in 2019 was the highest level of greenhouse gas emissions we have had in history, Right. And despite 25 years of conferences like this one going on in um, in, uh, in Glasgow today, okay, so that was the highest. They fell by 5.6% last year, not because of anything the UN did, but because of the recession caused by COVID-19. When there's a recession, people have less money to buy stuff. They're more uncertain about the future. They don't buy goods and services, and almost all goods and services use fossil fuel energy to be created. But what's happening now? The estimate now is that global emissions this year will be up, I think it's about 4.8%. And guess what that'll be? That'll be the second highest level since 2019. So the only thing that we've had is a one-year 5.4% drop in 2020 because of the pandemic, not because of the pandemic. 
Right. We basically had to live in misery, and we would have to go so much further than that um, because we wouldn't have our Netflix, of course. We wouldn't be baking bread. We would actually have to live in a yurt out in the wood with uh, woods with not, none of our modern conveniences well, to, do, to do what they want. It would have to be worse than last year economically for the world every year from now until at least 2030. That's what we right. would need in terms of lowering our emissions to what, what the U.N., is is demanding. So, you know, it But it's really easy for Mr. Trudeau, you know, it's easy to kick Canada. It's easy to get the sound bites at home and the media goes crazy with it because it's such a bold initiative, yada yada, we hear about it. I mean, he doesn't he would not have the leadership to go after and point out the obvious offenders like China. He doesn't have that kind of um, leadership value to go after the none of them do actually frankly none of them call out the real offenders uh, but the the bottom line is if we're going to get to these levels that they want and Gabol was um, Stephen Gabol was challenged on this you know like what are we, are you going to do he knows and we all know that in order to get to these uh, magical numbers set out by the United Nations we'd have to go up in thousands thousands of dollars in carbon uh, pricing that we'd have to pay. And, and at the end of the day, they care about the world. And right now, Canadians are worried about what's in their wallet, or more to the point, what's not in their wallets. Well, you look, look it, the, 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 the thing here is that there are two realities. There's one, one which is the, the, the science of climate change. And if you look at that, according to you know, the UN, we're screwed. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's too late. I mean, I mean yeah. it's, it's the only way. Like, they say, we have to have net zero emissions by... 2050. Okay, what does um, China say? Maybe they'll do it by 2060. <laughs> Maybe. What does yeah. India say? Maybe they'll do it by 2070. Um, uh, and so both the largest emitter in the world is going to miss this deadline to avoid catastrophe by 10 years, then the story's over, right? So, so that's one thing. But, but what's really going on here is an economic thing, which is a, mm-hmm. which is a shift away from fossil fuels to like you, you look at investment companies now, you know, they're, they're coming out of fossil fuels. Dumb decision, because right now fossil fuels are making money hand over fist. But that's mm-hmm. what they've done. They, you know, the electric vehicle industry. I mean, we're going to make that sucker survive no matter how much money we have to throw into it. Right. Um, and again, EVs in Canada, cold climate, not a great idea. Uh, just, you know, buy buy a small car, keep it well tuned. You'll be saving the planet as much as the guy from Tesla will even more, as a matter of fact. Yeah. So, but 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 the the concern is, and I think the concern Canadians should be concerned about. They're not going to kill the oil gas and sector, or for that matter, the coal sector all at once. It's going to be this slow, slow death. And the irony is that Trudeau originally said he wanted to use the 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 the, the, the taxes the government would get from wise stewardship of the oil, gas, and coal sector to fuel the cost or to pay the cost of a low-carbon economy. But he's abandoned that. He, I mean, he's literally abandoned. I mean, look, he'll get criticized because he bought the, you know, the Trans Mountain Pipeline from, from the environmental radicals. But, you know, exactly like you said, they, they want us all like sort of, you know, looking after our grazing sheep. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they don't understand. Well, they, 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 they emit as well, so that's the problem. <laughs> Lori, I'm, uh, I'm up against the clock okay. on, uh, on this, but uh, I'm glad you could fill us in. It was pretty much what I thought. A lot, a lot to say about nothing, but appreciate <laughs> you uh, joining us. Thank you. Thank you. That's Lori Goldstein, who writes upon these issues uh, and has been for decades. That's why he knows so much about it. And again, the sheep. Yeah, like cows. Naughty. Naughty for the environment. So we've got uh, the Prime Minister hanging out with world leaders, including U.S. President Biden, who uh, dozed off today. 
at the climate summit. Uh, the question I have for Mr. Trudeau, though, is he taking advantage of this time to push back against Biden's protectionist measures that are, in fact, worse than anything Donald Trump leveled against us. And um, it didn't get a lot of attention. But last Thursday, Biden doubled down on protectionist measures that will hurt Canada's auto industry big time. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The proposal, which is part of the big budget plan, is going to offer rebates of 12500 for electric vehicles made in America and 50% of American parts and an American-made battery. So there you go. If you want the deal, you got to buy America. Now, in October 2020, both uh, Premier Ford and Justin Trudeau announced about half a billion dollars to retool the Ford plant to make electric cars. This would uh, secure about 5,000 jobs. But then Ford went further saying, look, he wants Ontario to become the go-to place for electric car battery production. And so four of our five auto manufacturers have announced plans um, to build battery manufacturing here in Ontario. But, as Biden says, he wants to be the kingmaker in this area, which could spell some very big trouble here, especially when Ontario's auto sector remains the second largest export, valued at a whole $42.9 billion, and that was just in 2020. And here we have a like-minded liberal in charge, but uh, Mr. Biden has made clear he's building back better. Canada is no part of that plan. Mark Warner is principal at uh, MAAW Law. He's an international trade lawyer. He joins us now. Good to have you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Why isn't this getting more attention um, than this? Is this um, as threatening as it sounds? Well, I think there's a couple things going on here. I think one is that, you know, there, there's, there are a lot of uh, measures that have been bubbling up through the Congress. And there's, a, there's one bill in the House, one bill in the Senate. And Biden has more or less adopted some of this. And we really don't know what's going to pass yet. So um, that's probably why it hasn't focused. I thought it, I, I thought it got a lot of att- a, fair, a fair amount of attention. But then again, I, you know, I swim in this <laughs> in this ocean. So I guess I'm used to it. But, um, you know, so I, I think in, in some sense, it's, it, uh, it, you know, it has people have been focused on it. The pro- I think the issue on uh, what, I, what I have noticed, though, I think is we tend to focus in Canada on the what I'll call the made in America part of it, people are calling mm-hmm. it by American. It really is not by American. But that's a whole. That's a separate argument. It's really a made in America provision. And there, what it is, what Biden is, what, what the Democrats are trying to do, and which is kind of an interesting thing, is that they're Biden is trying to direct money for the production of of, um, of electric vehicles and electric batteries, but he's also trying to use union labor and the union labor mm-hmm. basically the unionized auto plants in the united states and in canada are what we used to call the detroit three whereas right. the asian manufacturers the korean and the japanese manufacturers in the united states and in canada tend not to be unionized so part of what and, and part of what's going on here is, is is that production uh if if biden succeeds if the democrats succeed that means more of that production will take place closer to canada which seems to me to give us more opportunities because without that that union label requirement, the production is all going to go to the south, and right. so that's that's something Canadians need to keep in mind too. Because while it sounds superficially that it at first glance that it might actually hurt Canada, the extent that it's keeping auto production just across the border from us, we might not want to scream too loud because not Alabama, too. Georgia, a lot a much further away and a lot cheaper workforce than in Michigan. So it's bad, but we have to be, you know, we don't come with clean hands on this either. When I was in the Ontario government, 
under McGinty, we had the famous Green Energy Act for solar, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, the turbines and uh, for wind stuff as well. We had by, you know, by Ontario or by Canada provisions that went all the way up to a WTO case. So, look, all countries who are trying to get into this industry are going to do this. We will have remedies. We'll be able to argue under the, the new NAFTA with the Cosmo, whatever it is, or go to the WTO. You know, just as Ontario made the judgment, you know, giving away any huge secrets uh, with the Green Energy Act, I think that it's fair to say the Ontario government said, by the time you get a resolution, we'll already have established the industry. And that's pretty much how the Americans will look at complaints Canada makes about uh, about the trade aspects of this. They, by the time we get a resolution through NAFTA, the new NAFTA or the WTO, you know, these things will already work their way through the system. And the remedy will be something that will get Canada to basically um, get the United States at best to rescind the measure. It won't do very much. So I think I think there's room for diplomacy here. I guess what I would say one thing, I think what probably what we need to do in Canada is we have to make sure that we're coming at this uh, electric vehicle, electric battery issue from a point of view of what I call policy coherence. And there's a lot of press releases mm-hmm. going out about, you know, all of those uh, interesting minerals that are found in Canada. But in order to be truly useful, we actually have yeah, to yeah. get them to the market, which means right. dealing with a lot of issues of red tape and regulation. And I don't really have a sense that we have a federal government that's too into that. Um, they're very good well, at the press releases and talking about supply chains, but that's that's what we have to do if we're going to be able to market ourselves as a secure source of supply to so come and invest here and build an auto industry around it. Yeah, I mean, we're long past due, um, you know, uh, the ring of fire to be developed. We get the announcements. It never gets done, and you're right. Um, yeah, there's a lot of negotiating that has to go on with First Nations groups, uh, but again, uh, and t- I mean, it's, a, it's a, an enormous opportunity that we seem to just kind of uh, squander or never move on. But wouldn't there have been put something, I mean, given the concerns that, um, you know, uh, Canada had about Donald Trump when he reopened NAFTA, uh, you know, wouldn't there have been any kind of provision built into that uh, about protectionist measures, especially with auto? Well, I, I, I'd say I wouldn't have thought so in the same way we didn't exempt the Americans and the Green Energy Act, you know, when we did solar, we could easily have done that. I think governments are putting lots of money on the table for this uh, environmental stuff. And, and that's one of, the, one of the arguments that Canadians need to be aware of when we defend this stuff, because we are a smaller country. If you really want to legitimize um, this form of assistance, and like we did in the Green Energy Act, um, people will say, well, we can do that too. And they're bigger and they've got a bigger pocketbook. So, um, I think also here, like I think, as I said, I think the, the part of it that people are really missing is the union label part. It's the union labor part in the U.S. And that, I think, how do you exempt Canada from that? I mean, they're, he's basic, Biden and the Democrats are basically saying they don't want uh, the money to go to people who are not hiring union workers. And the truth of the matter is the fastest growing and to some extent, depending how you measure it, the biggest part of the Canadian auto industry now is not unionized. It's the Asian yeah. producers. But we're not going to get exempted from that. So it's a convenient thing to talk about made in America, made in America. But that's the issue. And what's, the irony of this is, if people who have a long memory will remember, that at the beginning of the negotiations under Trump for the new NAFTA, Canada, led by Christian Freeland, made a big issue that we were going to go after the right-to-work laws in the American South. And we went mm-hmm. on the offensive on that issue. We lost. It didn't get in there. So, but that is somewhat of the irony now, because now Canada has to come up and say, 
well, actually, we'd rather not talk about special provisions about union labor. So we're we're kind of in the position of Mexico right now. Uh, but but right. again, not just Mexico, but Mexico and the American South. That, that's that's the key part of it. So I, I think I, I, my guess is this will probably be dealt with them um, at some at some way um, um, uh, with the Detroit Three companies at least being exempted with through diplomacy. But we're not going to get the, uh, the 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 Asian producers that aren't using union labor exempted. I think that's uh, that's too 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 far reach in my view. Yeah, I mean, I, I just find it interesting for all those who thought that uh, Joe Biden was the answer to everyone's prayers. I mean, he's no less a protectionist than Donald Trump. Uh, um, and if, and if Mr. Trump, I spent the last five years telling everybody that the Democrats are always been more protectionist than the Republicans, and I'm so. I get so annoyed because wasn't anyone listening to me? <laughs> no, sadly, no, they were not. No, they were not. And and so you would think, though, you would think, though, with the with the relationship between Biden and Mr. Trudeau, I mean, here you got two lefties. They should get on uh, thick as thieves. And um, so, you know, he better be working that uh, quiet diplomacy behind the scenes because you and I both know that this whole build back better. I mean, it was coined in the United States. It somehow got brought up here. But they they if the Americans can corner this market, they will. So if if we're just yeah. sitting around waiting for something to happen. We will be the well, I, the, the, the loser here. Yeah, but I think we, I mean, that's why I think we have to go from writing speeches and press releases about the supply chain and the critical minerals. We actually have to get mm. on, start doing things. And because then I think we come to it, we come to the table with a more concrete offer to the Americans. But, and, and that also includes not just the, the regulatory stuff of the First Nations approval, but also a lot of our mining interests are owned by Chinese companies. So if the Americans are talking about securing a source of supply from Canada, um, dealing with mining companies that we've allowed to be purchased by state-owned Chinese entities, is that really going to solve the American problem? So there's, it, it requires a lot deeper conversation than we've had to date in Canada. I do think that the Detroit 3 part of it probably can be solved diplomatically. Um, I don't think the union labor part, if that – but again, remember, the union labor part might not even survive this bill as it gets through Congress, right? That's a, that's a whole other step um, to get to get through these bills through the House and the Senate together. With the very narrow yeah. control that the Democrats have with Manchin, it's probably likely that that will might fall away as well. Stay tuned. We will see. All right, Mark. Appreciate the uh, clarity on this. We'll chat again. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. That is Mark Warner. Yes, he was uh, sounding the alarms about Mr. Biden. And no, a lot of people didn't listen. But he's so nice. No, he's not. He cares about what America cares about. That's what he cares about. All righty. Great to have you here on this Monday as we dig into the show. Now, you may not have gotten COVID, but certainly the pandemic has hit all of us in some way or another. Maybe you've uh, lost a job or been hit financially. Maybe you've been uh, hit with another health issue or a mental health issue. I find it interesting, there's this report coming out of uh, Hamilton's McMaster University where researchers, along with the Offord Center for Child Studies, they've been tracking the impacts of the pandemic on the health and the well-being of families. And they find depression and anxiety symptoms in parents were higher in the third wave than in the first wave. You look to 2020, and 57% of those taking care of kids reported 
uh, significant depressive symptoms in wave one compared to 69% in 2021. And I think one of the most striking findings was that a huge proportion of those who said they were suffering couldn't get help because either they didn't know where to go or wait times were simply too long. Andrea Gonzalez is an associate professor and tier two Canada research chair in family health and preventative interventions, also a lead research on this study. Good to have you, professor. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. So, you know, I think that would surprise people, um, you know, that it was the third wave where people started to find kind of the height of their, their angst, let's say, versus the first. Why would that be? I think that it's the chronicity and the pervasiveness. So by the third wave uh, in Ontario, we had been through multiple lockdowns. And when the survey was launched uh, in early May, we were back to remote learning and the physical uh, distancing measures that were put in place and all the public health restrictions. So I think people were just exhausted. When we looked at the actual symptoms that people were reporting um, as elevated, because the the number 69% really was quite shocking to us, people were really struggling in areas of concentration and motivation or, or needing like effort in order to get things done. Um, a high proportion of people were reporting restless sleep uh, as well. So I think it was just having been through 12 months of this, even though we knew the vaccines were um, starting to roll out, it's just people were exhausted, I think, and and really feeling burnt out. That's what I think was driving the findings behind the third wave. So would I be wrong in characterizing? I mean, the first wave, I recall, you know, working very long hours, but I think there was this adrenaline, there was this novelty to it. It's like, what's to come? What's going to happen? It was like this unknown. But by wave three, we knew what was coming and it was nothing good. Uh, It's almost like, okay, (laughs) I've had it with all of this. Yeah, exactly. And I think lots of people, um, you know, were had been practicing really physical distancing hadn't seen family for a long period of time. Kids were isolated from their friends because uh, children weren't vaccinated. The 12 and uh, uh, older kids weren't being vaccinated yet. So I think there was this uncertainty with the first wave and anxiety around COVID because it was so new. But we we didn't think it was going to last as long as it was. And it was almost like by the third wave, oh, here we go again, and we're we're back in this situation. So uh, I, I, I do think it's the chronicity and pervasiveness that was exhausting. And did your data or research um, compare other provinces? Because Ontario was certainly the most lockdown province of all of the provinces. And I'm just wondering if we have any data to compare, let's say, what those in, in Alberta or maybe B.C. were facing compared to what Ontarians were facing. No, there were other smaller studies that have been done um, in Alberta, for example, and a smaller study in Manitoba. And then Statistics Canada and the Public Health Agency have looked at Canadians in general um, and have found not as high as our numbers were, um, but certainly very consistent findings that if you compare these numbers to pre-pandemic levels, they're certainly elevated. And in particular, in 
uh, caregivers of, of children less than 18 right. years of age, which is what our um, sample was specifically focused on as well. So, and yeah. this is a trend that we've seen worldwide, actually, with these elevated um, symptoms of depression and anxiety as well. And so, you know, the, the kind of ongoing narrative has been people will bounce back, especially children. They will bounce back because they're resilient, and, and they are resilient. But at the, at the same time, there are a lot of different socioeconomic issues facing kids. Uh, I mean, those in lower marginalized, um, you know, categories uh, may not ever bounce back or may not catch up with work. But there's also, I think, I still... Uh, a huge amount of exhaustion, um, you know, that people are feeling, um, you know, to this day, even though we're in the fourth wave and seemingly kind of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm not sure when the anxiety and exhaustion will subside for people. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Alex. I mean, we don't have the data and we are planning to run the follow-up again in February to check in and see how families are doing. But I think anecdotally, what we've been hearing um, is, especially in in caregivers, uh, I I think many of us are still playing catch up. So even though we've um, gone back to quote unquote normal life with kids back in in in-person school for the most part and extracurricular activities, that adults are still feeling quite burnt out and playing catch up and also holding their breath. Mm-hmm. Um, with some uncertainty, knowing that the winter is coming and, and numbers, even flu season numbers tend to yeah. increase. And, and what does that mean? So um, I think that, you know, the potential for bounce back is, you know, for sure a possibility. I think it's probably going to be longer lasting when we think about uh, just stress in general and how, Uh, chronic uh, the pandemic has been in terms of stressors for caregivers and families and children it's it's a significant stressor so it is going to take time and I think you know practicing self-care and giving yourself a break is a an important message and if you need help there are um, you know different kinds of programs and uh, in our report we put out links that are available from the federal provincial and municipal levels because as you mentioned at the outset, there were families that couldn't yeah. find help. They didn't even know where to turn. So there is, there is, you know, there are options out there. Yeah, the system is not exactly user-friendly. It could use a bit of a concierge makeover, if you ask me. Just before I let you go, I've only got about 45 seconds, Doctor or, uh, Professor. Do you have the kind of data or research that will tell you some of the spin-off illnesses that the stress or this anxiety or the burnout is going to be causing people? Are you starting to see stuff in people that, you know, is kind of linked back to to some of of what's been going on in the last two years? Um, We don't have um, good data about that, I would say. We have qualitative data. So people were able to write responses about um, just in words how they were feeling. And we're still sort of gathering that into themes. And I think um, people are feeling that exhaustion. And in the report, they did report, um, you know, 16% of kids, of their children were experiencing what they call physical symptoms. And when we asked further questions about it, it was things like headaches and, you know, tiredness. And I think it, it's all connected to all that screen time and remote learning and everything being done um, on a computer. So 
again, we don't know the long-term impacts of it. And hopefully now that kids are back in school, they'll be, um, you know, not having those issues. But I think adults need to be very aware of their own functioning and just take care of themselves. I I think self-care was probably at the bottom of the priority list for caregivers and and it's just so important. So. Well, I'll be curious to see what the uh, autopsy, when it comes to looking into this kind of, uh, you know, the side effects, the collateral damage of those who didn't get COVID and what they, they went through, because I think it's going to be very interesting to see. Um, I appreciate your time on this, and we'll talk again, and I'll look forward to seeing the next uh, phase of this, um, this data. Great. Thank you so much. That is Professor Andrea Gonzalez with McMaster University, who is part of this particular study um, looking into the impacts of the pandemic on health and well-being. So there's more data to come, and we'll keep on top of that. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'd love to have you. I'm Alex Pearson. On Point, this is Global News Radio.